Daniel loved evenings in Castro. Surely there was nowhere in the world like San Francisco, where the sun seemed to hang in the sky forever, its light dancing on the streetcars outside. As he turned the open sign on the door to close, that twilight glow brought a smile to his face, one that had been missing for a while. Years past, he would have had to ease the last of his regulars out into the night air at closing time, but recently it had been much quieter. And regulars weren't just customers in a place like this. They were friends, a community that stuck together. If society was giving you a hard time about who you were, you could come to Dan's Cafe and be who you wanted to be. (laughs) At least for a couple of hours. But he was missing a few people. He hadn't seen some dear friends in what felt like forever. He'd heard rumours, though. Caught mentions on the TV in the corner of the cafe. Whispers from conversations at the tables. Welcome to the 1980s, a time many of us remember well. The ninth episode of our History of Pandemics season sees us leave the perils of influenza behind, only to discover an entirely new virus, HIV. I well recall the emerging concern that later grew into a media panic around HIV and the disease it leads to, AIDS. But today, we'll follow the story from the beginning with medical experts who've worked on the front line of this pandemic since the early days. Shortly, we'll speak to Dr. Harold Jaffe, now visiting professor in Oxford's Nuffield Department of Population Health, who back in 1981 joined the original task force of the CDC, that's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, assigned to study the disease that would soon become known as AIDS. First though, we'll hear from Professor John Freighter, also now part of the Nuffield department, who started working with HIV patients in the mid-1990s. I asked John to begin by describing the virus for us. So the HIV, or the human immunodeficiency virus, probably crossed over from animals, chimpanzees most likely, um, at the turn of the last century. So they've probably been with us for over 100 years. And they were in Africa for a long time until the early 80s, when it first became apparent that young gay men on the west coast of America started to suffer with um, an infection called pneumocystis pneumonia, which you, you normally would only see in people who had immune systems that weren't working very well or who'd had chemotherapy or something else like that. And there was a whole cluster of these young men on, this, on the west coast and it didn't make sense. And so people started to question whether there was something else going on or some new infection that could explain it. And so that was when in the early 80s, this new virus was discovered, which didn't have a name at the time, obviously, um, but immuno, human immunodeficiency virus sort of explains what it does and who it affects. Um, and really from then on, it became a global pandemic spreading very quickly to all countries associated with a lot of illness, a lot of stigma, a lot of huge impacts on economies and sort of social development and really kind of went into all corners of people's lives. And it was it was only in sort of the, the mid 90s that we began to have some treatment for this and treatment that was really effective. And so really the, the one chapter closed, if you like, in the mid 90s of, of a, a condition that we didn't know how to treat was killing young people was killing people all around the world and and producing conditions that we didn't really know how to manage to 
later on in the 90s when we could actually give a tablet for this and keep people well to where we are today where I can treat in my clinic um, someone who's living with HIV with one tablet that they take once a day and we now expect their life expectancy to be as normal compared to anyone else and for them not to have to suffer with these other infections and conditions which we would otherwise call AIDS. You asked what AIDS was and I think one of the things that people get a bit confused about is the difference between HIV and AIDS. So first of all, HIV is the virus. It's just, it's the organism, if that's what you want to call it. Viruses are organisms. And it is, it is the bug that causes the trouble. And you can be infected with HIV without having AIDS. In fact, on average, it takes about eight years, give or take a few, for, the, for on average, to, to go from infection to developing AIDS. And AIDS stands for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. And really what AIDS is, is a mixture of infections and cancers that the person who has HIV will develop if their immune system breaks down too much. So once your immune system starts to fail, those infections that you normally can keep control of and the cancers in your body that might take off, but your immune system stops them, they can then start to take hold on that person and cause them to become ill. And that is why we start seeing these conditions associated with HIV. So it's not HIV that actually kills you. It's the cancers or the other infections that your, your immune system lets in when it becomes too weak. And that's what AIDS is. So it's different from HIV. And a lot of people get confused about that. So that's the disease. But how is it spread? I checked back in with one of our main guides throughout this series, Blanche Oguti, on how the HIV virus is transmitted. HIV can be transmitted via the exchange of a variety of bodily fluids from infected people such as blood, breast milk, semen, vaginal secretions. It can also be transmitted from mother to child during pregnancy and delivery. The symptoms of HIV then vary depending on the stage of infection. So all the way from right at the beginning, people not feeling that unwell or feeling kind of flu-like symptoms. And this is at the beginning, in the first few weeks after being infected, when actually they can be their most infectious during this time. And this is when quite a lot of transmission happens, when people are unaware of their status and they have quite a high viral load. Um, also, the infection then progressively weakens the immune system. And then other signs and symptoms can come in, like swollen lymph nodes, weight loss, fever, diarrhea, cough. And then much later on, um, through the progression, without any and therapy, then you can develop more severe illnesses such as tuberculosis, cryptococcal meningitis, cancer such as lymphomas, carposis sarcoma and severe bacterial infections. There are key populations that um, tend to be infected, although every country has a different kind of um, main transmission link. Essentially, key populations and their sexual partners accounted for about 60% of all new HIV infections globally among people 15 to 49 years. And this was data from last year. So your key populations are men who have sex with men, people who inject drugs, prisoners or other people in closed settings. You also have sex workers and their clients, transgender people. Sometimes also social circumstances can make people become key populations, such as adolescent girls and young women in Southern Africa and Eastern Africa, indigenous populations. They don't have many rights and they can be victims of a lot of sexual violence and they can become um, key populations in that way. The risk factors 
are um, unprotected anal vaginal sex, sharing contaminated needles, syringes, and such, having sexually transmitted infections such as syphilis and herpes, also receiving unsafe injections and blood transfusions. And then for healthcare workers, another important route of transmission is accidental needle stick injuries. Still thinking about the relationship between HIV and AIDS, I wanted to check whether the medical community had discovered both at the same time, or, as I seem to remember, that AIDS had become apparent long before the virus was identified. So, effectively, yes, because you had to have a clinical condition first. So, I mean, one of the great mysteries about this is that HIV had been infecting people in Africa for probably nearly a century. Um, before it was discovered causing problems in North America over on the West Coast. And so clearly there must have been people getting ill, but whatever the infrastructure was, it wasn't picking up the fact that this was sort of out of the ordinary. It was only when these new conditions appeared. So yes, yeah, so, so people were getting this infection called pneumocystis pneumonia. They were getting cancers, one in particular called Kaposi's sarcoma. And once you have those, you are officially, if you like, um, diagnosed with AIDS. AIDS, AIDS is a, a collection of different conditions. And if you have one of those conditions, then you have an AIDS diagnosis. So yes, AIDS came first and AIDS was the trigger, if you like, the flag for saying, what is causing this? Now at the time, we didn't know it was AIDS because it hadn't been invented yet. It was just an odd collection of cancers and infections that we, we, we didn't understand, but seemed to be clustering around you know, certain groups of people. And so that caused the epidemiologists in the same way that you know, we're worrying about COVID now, where did this come from? How can you track that down in the early days of that? So in the same way, in the early days of HIV, um, a group of people had to say, well, where has this come from and how do we make sense of all of this? And that is when a new virus was found. And in fact, finding that virus led to the, the award of the Nobel Prize to the people who did it. It was such a huge event, to, 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 to a, a huge achievement, if you like. So yes, so absolutely, the clinical condition came first. And that is, in a way, sometimes classic in, in epidemiology. You know, we have conditions we don't understand. And COVID, again, would have been one of them. You know, people suddenly had coughs and, and headaches, and we didn't know why. And we had to find an explanation, and it turned out to be a coronavirus. And the story of HIV back in the beginning is just the same. Let's hear now from one of the people right at the heart of that work in those early days, Dr. Harold Jaffe. Well, the first anybody knew about it was actually 1981 when we received a report from CDC about some cases of unusual infection called pneumocystis in young homosexual men in Los Angeles. The reason this was unusual is because this infection, pneumocystis, normally occurred only in people with cancer chemotherapy or, or had something to suppress their immune system. But these individuals were not healthy, were healthy before and hadn't had these conditions. So why they, they were developing these serious infections was a mystery at the time. We now know they were infected with HIV. The story of, of HIV became much clearer. It took a lot of work. It appears that this is a virus that originated in non-human primates, particularly in chimpanzees and gorillas, perhaps. It probably passed over into humans about 100 years ago, uh, related to humans butchering these animals for meat. The virus infecting the animals was a related virus called SIV, which is simian immunodeficiency virus. It took a while for it to adapt to human hosts, but it did so over the course of probably about 75 years and started causing disease in humans probably in the uh, early 1970s, late 1970s, in Africa, spread to Caribbean and then the United States. I asked Harold where he was working at that time. Well, I was working as a medical epidemiologist in the venereal disease division at CDC in Atlanta. 
when these cases came to us, we didn't know what to do with them. They didn't fit into any obvious disease category that we knew about. So we assembled a task force of people with various disciplines, including virology, immunology, uh, venereal diseases, cancer epidemiology, and said, we'll take a crack at this. So that happened in June 1981. We really didn't know where the disease was occurring. We just had these case reports from a few cities. So we needed to find out where it was occurring, when it was occurring, was it only in gay men or other populations? So to do that, we needed a surveillance system, which we didn't have. And the first thing you need for a surveillance system is the case definition. What are you looking for? The disease didn't have a name. We called it KSOI, for Kaposi sarcoma and opportunistic infections. So we published a case definition and started asking people to look for the disease in their major metropolitan areas and discovered that the disease wasn't just limited to San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. It was occurring throughout the country, at the time only in gay men. We started out investigating individual cases. So we sent people out, including myself, to interview cases, find out how they were living, what their possible risk factors were. Then we needed to do a more definitive study to find out how the disease was being transmitted so that we did what's called a case control study. We take cases with people who have the disease and compare them to healthy people who don't have the disease and try to find out the difference. So we did this in homosexual men in four cities in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Atlanta, New York. We interviewed 50 patients in great depth concerning their sexual behavior, drug use, and so on. We had 120 apparently healthy homosexual men as the control patients. We found big differences in their histories of sexual activity. The cases were much more sexually active, but they also used a lot of drugs as well. So we thought at that point that these were sexually transmitted infection, but we couldn't rule out the role of drugs. It took a while to do that. But over a course of a year or two, we were pretty sure that this was sexually transmitted disease. That was before the virus was actually isolated in 1983 by Luc Montagnier and colleagues in Paris. I think at the time we did the study, there were only 70 known cases in the United States, and we were able to enroll 50 of them, so that's pretty good. It was harder to figure out who the control should be. So ideally, it would be a random sample of gay men, but nobody knew how to do that. So we tried various approaches. We ended up using gay men seen in the private practices of physicians in these cities, and also recruited gay men from public STD or GUM clinics to use them as the controls. I think when we realized that the epidemic wasn't limited to gay men, we realized how bad it was going to be. I mean, while we thought it was only gay men, we thought, well, this is a bad problem, but it won't spread. Once we realized it was sexually transmitted and in the blood supply, we realized it was going to be a big problem throughout the world, and it was. However, as Harold recalls, it took a while for the mainstream media to latch on to this emerging threat. The mainstream media mostly ignored AIDS at the beginning. They treated it as sort of a medical odyssey happening in a gay men didn't pay much attention to it. Now, the gay press, in contrast, paid a lot of attention to it and tried to increase awareness in the gay community, but the mainstream press didn't really get engaged until we started seeing cases in transfusion recipients, children, people with hemophilia. That took a couple of years before that happened. I remember when we published the first cases of uh, cases in transfusion recipients and cases in children, the media suddenly paid attention. I had, a, I think, three news crews in, outside of my office at CDC. I thought, this is great, we're getting some attention to this epidemic, but where were they a year and a half ago? So we put out a lot of public information in adverts and other media and scientific papers. I think a landmark event was this mailing of the Surgeon General's report on AIDS to every American household in 87, and that I think had a big effect in calming the public. And by the time John Freitas started working in this field, the public awareness and medical impact of the disease had grown hugely. Yeah, so I first got involved looking after people living with HIV back in, I'm just trying to think, the mid-90s. 
And it was by chance. I actually, at that time, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I mean, I'd only been qualified in medicine about two or three years. And I was sort of flirting with lots of different specialties. None of them really got me interested. And then just by chance, I was working at St. Mary's Hospital in London, um, in Paddington, which was one of the key centres back then for people living with HIV. And, you know, there were two dedicated wards of, you know, over 20 beds each. They were full all the time. Um, the patients coming through the doors were all young men, predominantly, predominantly young men. And they were people my age. And so they, I think there was, a, there was an immediate sort of sense you know, of of integration with what was going on. You felt as a doctor, like th this was new and th th it was different. We weren't quite sure what we were doing. You know, we were getting some people better and sending them home, but some people were dying in their beds on the wards. And, you know, this shouldn't be happening in, in the mid nineties. And so it was from there that I, I got very interested in what this was all about and what was happening. Um, and on the back of that, just as the drugs were coming out, it was just at the time when the drugs were being launched, these, this triple cocktail. There was the opportunity to do some work to to find out if these drugs really were going to be effective on people, and so I was able to sort of take a undertake a PhD at Imperial College then um, to look at these drugs. Then once I started to work on HIV, I never really looked back really, um, and it's been sort of a sort of a roller coaster since then. Part of that roller coaster experience was the appreciation of just how far this disease had spread. I asked first Harold and then John to tell us more about the experience of HIV and AIDS outside the United States, and particularly in Africa. Well, at the beginning, we weren't aware of cases any place other than the United States. It wasn't until 1983 when we were getting reports from Africa, actually about Africans seeking care in Europe and Belgium and France and the UK, people who could afford to travel to get medical care coming from Central Africa. At that point, we realized that the epidemic wasn't just in the United States, it was becoming a global problem. I remember giving a talk in the UK, I think it was in March 1983, when the cases in the UK totaled maybe about 10 or 12, and a physician came up to me afterwards and said, that's a terrible problem you have in the United States. And I thought, hmm, might just, just be us, you might have it too. I, I think that first question about why it was only picked up, you know, in North America on the West Coast in San Francisco, when sort of a small group of young gay men became unwell with this very rare chest infection is a really good one. Why wasn't it spotted earlier? Um, and, and should we have spotted it earlier? What we know is that it came from West Africa. We know it traveled up through Haiti into North America. Um, there, there's lots of debates about how that happened, but one of the main things was as immigration took off and economic sort of success was achieved in Africa and industrialization and the railway lines grew and there was the growth of the sex industry, which often goes hand in hand with industrialization. And, and with all of those things, HIV started to move out of probably quite a small area where it was. So it may well have been quite contained before sort of big transport networks were set up. And it may just have been that there was something going on, but with everything else that people were putting up with, it just didn't quite stand out as, as to a cause of, of, of a new disease. I mean, one of, I mean, it's just speculating what it might be. What we know in, in Africa is that many of the people who live with HIV also get tuberculosis, and tuberculosis is often the cause of death with people who don't have treatment with HIV. Well, we know TB was already in Africa, so it may be that just there wasn't that trigger to say, well, is there another explanation for this? So it's difficult. I think what was, what was different on the West Coast is it was so unusual. You know, to see one young person with pneumocystis would be a surprise. To see a whole cluster of them, 
you know, no one is going to say this is normal. And so people are going to start looking very quickly for an explanation for that. So it, what, what happened there was completely out of the ordinary. And, and so clearly raised a lot of red flags as to there was something new going on. It was now time to bring in our third guest for the episode, Professor Jimmy Whitworth from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, formerly team leader for the Medical Research Council programme on AIDS, based in Uganda. I worked in Uganda from uh, 1996 until 2004. I was based in Entebbe at the Uganda Virus Research Institute, which is where the Medical Research Council had its uh, headquarters. Most of the work that I was doing was in villages in southwestern Uganda, particularly in Masaka district. Now, these were the days before antiretroviral drugs were widely available. So it was a very different era, perhaps, to, to what we have now. I arrived after the epidemic had really taken hold in Uganda. And we were still in a situation where we didn't know a great deal about the disease. Most of the work that I was involved in, at least initially, was around describing what the impact of this was at the population level. How frequent was the disease? What type of people were most often affected by it? What was the natural history of how this infection uh, progressed? what were the main causes of deaths and of infections that, that, that people had. Surprising perhaps to, to think that that wasn't known at that time. Um, if, if you think about, say, coronavirus now, within the first six months, we've known an awful lot about uh, what the risk factors are, how frequent it is, the, 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 the way in which it, it progresses. But Things were much slower to be organised in, in, in those days. And so even 10 years after the epidemic had taken hold, we were still learning quite a lot of basic epidemiological information about HIV. But what we did discover was that it was throughout the population. It was what you might call a generalised epidemic. Initially, it had probably been in very high-risk groups, but it had spilled out from those into the general population. The other main factor that came out from this was that it was actually a pretty long-drawn-out illness. The initial impression from Africa had been that it was a, a very rapid, severe disease. But that's because we were only looking at people who were admitted into hospital when they were in extremists. When we actually did studies in villages, we found that on average people were living for about 10 years with this infection. But for the first six, seven, eight years of that time, they were actually relatively well. Maybe they had um, more frequent chest infections or more frequent diarrhea or skin rashes, but in general, they were pretty well for most of that time. And it was really only in the last year or two of their life that they were getting um, severely ill. 
as well as the epidemiology, we had studies which were looking at the more social aspect of the disease and a lot of work about sexual activity, uh, transactional sex, adolescent uh, sexual behaviour and so on and the way in which society reacted to this infection. One of the most interesting things I, I found in this part of Uganda was this cultural institution called Senga. And Senga translates in Luganda into meaning aunt. And the, the point here is that within the, the, the culture in this part of Uganda, it is not common for parents and children to discuss sex but it is entirely permissible for children to talk to their aunt or their uncle about sexual matters that was the way in 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 which traditionally this this was organized in in this society and what we were able to do from knowing about about senga was actually to try to to support this institution more and the two ways in which we did this one was that particularly women who were of the right age and had nephews and nieces we were able to to give them more information about HIV what it was how it was transmitted how it could be prevented and so on so that they were better able to perform their role as a sanger as well we also tried elements of developing what you might call professional sangers so people who with this additional knowledge could become confidants of adolescent girls particularly and give them that information although they might not necessarily be blood relatives and i think this points to a wider point about hiv and actually epidemics in general and that is that you really need the population to be on side and contributing to controlling an, an epidemic. And in fact, if you don't have that, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to control an epidemic. It can't actually be done just by the authorities or by professional groups as a, as a vertical activity. You can't impose that control on a population. The population needs to take ownership and needs to recognise their role in being able to control this. So in, in Uganda, one of the ways in which Uganda was, was successful in actually being able to control the epidemic is that the population took control themselves. Once they understood that this illness was not a visitation from God, but was actually caused by a, a virus, and that was transmitted largely through sexual contact, and that there were things you could do to protect yourself. Once they took control and took charge of that, then the control of the HIV epidemic really started to take off. Our next guest was also working in Africa around that time. Dr. Kevin de Kock, now director of the CDC's work in Kenya, was from 2006 to 2009, director of the World Health Organization's Department of HIV AIDS. 
By the way, you might hear an alarm going off in Kevin's office in the background. I can assure you he was safe throughout the recording. CDC started working in Kenya back in 1979. And that was actually, I, I wasn't involved, but I was actually working in Kenya, teaching internal medicine at the university. The CDC got involved here to do malaria research. But in from about 2000 onwards, that mandate broadened to include HIV research. And then in 2003, President Bush announced the very large program, the, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which was really the the beginning of the AIDS, big AIDS money for treatment, prevention, uh, I mean, for a very comprehensive HIV approach. So in Kenya, we've been involved not only in working with other agencies such as USAID and the Department of Defense, but working with the government and the Ministry of Health on very broad HIV program work, including treatment, treatment scale-up. But we've also been involved in HIV research here. Um, so that's the HIV presence that we have here in Kenya. It's a very large program. At its height, the budget was about, for, for, for the overall budget, not just CDC, was uh, about $500 million a year. The huge investment in HIV has strengthened systems, and that's had a spin-off effect on other areas. I mean, I think, for example, of laboratory, public health laboratory capacity in Kenya, enormous investment in HIV for HIV diagnosis, use of rapid tests, quality assurance and control, strengthening of the tuberculosis laboratory system. But it's had spin-offs in terms of laboratory management, leadership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Another area where HIV money's been used, but other monies as well, has been in the workforce development, uh, particularly epidemiology. I mean, I recall when we started the field epidemiology training program, which is sort of a copy of that EIS program that I talked about at the beginning. CDC has invested in these field epidemiology programs in many countries across the world, some more successful than others. Well, we started the one in Kenya back in 2004, and the capacity today to investigate outbreaks, including the ongoing coronavirus, SARS coronavirus 2 situation, it's really very, very different from how it was at the beginning. So there's been in, there has been major impact of the HIV programs. And it's true that in those West African countries like Liberia, Sierra Leone and, uh, and Guinea, there was little or no investment. And they, I mean, their HIV situate, they do have HIV and it's, it's a serious disease, but very low rates of infection compared to East and Southern Africa. But I think East and Southern Africa have been more developed in other areas as well. Of course, South Africa, which has a very severe HIV epidemic, I mean, that was the has been for a long time the most advanced economy on the continent. So it's a, it's a complex picture. I wanted to return to the timeline of this disease and how the medical profession developed their approach to taking on this devastating virus. In the early days of HIV, and this, this was back in the days when, you know, if you have a virus, you just sort of take some paracetamol and go to bed. We didn't really have anything. You couldn't treat a virus infection. You know, it was just, you could treat bacteria with antibiotics, but viruses where you just sort of, you just sucked it up and waited to get it, to get over it all and for your immune system to work. And, and in the early days of HIV, really, there weren't any obvious medications around. One of the drug companies had an old cancer drug on the shelf 
that hadn't really worked out very well for cancer, but when they tested a lot of their drugs against HIV, this drug called AZT or Zidovudine happened to have some effect against it. And so this was the first time there was a tablet you could take which would inhibit HIV. And so there was a little bit of optimism back then, you know, we thought this will be sorted, we can give a tablet, we can cure HIV with our tablet and, you know, pandemic halted and we can kind of go back to normal reality. Unfortunately, what happened was, is that this, this tablet AZT was given to people with HIV and for a short period of time, sometimes weeks, you could see that the virus level in their body would drop down, but then it would come back up again to where it was before. And then the person's disease would carry on as before. And so the effect of AZT was very short lived. And so this led to a lot of anxiety as to why that was. And then another drug came along, um, which you could pair up with AZT. So now we had dual therapy. So you could give two tablets. So we all thought, well, hold on, this is the answer. We'll give two drugs now because one isn't good enough. And when you gave two drugs, the level of virus in the body dropped down lower than it had done before and for longer, but then it came back up again after a few months. And what we started to find is, and this is the one really when science and clinical medicine properly started coming together, is when you took the DNA sequence of the virus that was infecting those people, you could see that the virus had mutated. And the virus had mutated in places where the drug was acting. And so it was very clear then that HIV can mutate really quickly. And if you just have one or two drugs and you only need one or two mutations to become resistant, you become resistant straight away. However, the breakthrough was in 1996 when there was a new class of drugs called the protease inhibitors. And what was different here is you could then give three drugs. So a protease inhibitor on its own wouldn't do anything much more than the others would. But if you give three drugs, the virus has to work too hard to make three mutations against all three at the same time. And although we know it can produce many mutations really quickly, it's been calculated that in someone not on treatment, HIV makes every single possible mutation in its genome every day. So you're, you're up against you know, Darwin's ideal machine of how to make evolution and natural selection work. So you're up against a huge cliff here. But three drugs gets over it, because even with that mutation rate, three drugs, one of them will be effective and then stop the virus mutating so it can't become resistant to the others. So that three drug moment was known as the, you know, the triple cocktail. Um, and this is when therapy started to work. Back in the 90s, in the mid 90s, the drugs were effective, but they were almost impossible to take. You know, you're taking, you know, 16, 20 tablets a day. You were taking them three times a day. Some of them had to be kept in the fridge. So if you're going to work, you had to sort of hide your tablets in the work fridge and no one would notice you taking them at lunchtime. Some of them had to be taken with certain things or couldn't be taken with grapefruit juice. It was, you know, it was almost impossible to ask people to successfully take these tablets for the rest of their lives and, and hope that it would work and be effective. And so we did start to see some resistance in some people. And so that created kind of potential problems. But actually, if in those people who could take the drugs, it worked. And then what has happened over the last decade, I'd say a well, decade and a half, is that the drugs have become simpler, they've become less toxic, fewer side effects, and they've become much easier to take. And they've even been able to wrap the three drugs into one single tablet. So now you can take, as I said before, what you, now you can take one tablet once a day, and that will control your HIV. In terms of what happens next, you know, what we'd ideally like to do is have a situation where you don't even have to take a tablet a day. And we're now coming up with what's called injectables. So in this side of things, you have long acting drugs, 
and you can give them in a sort of what's called a depot form. So you have an injection, and that injection will give you enough drug to last you for three months at the moment. And so the future for therapy is people just come to clinic three, four times a year, have their injection, and they don't need to take tablets anymore. And the implications for that are enormous for people who are hard to reach, for young people who struggle sometimes to take tablets, for some of the kind of areas of the world where sort of healthcare isn't as well developed as it could be. And, you know, getting tablets out to the pharmacies is sometimes difficult just because of the supply network. So there are changes still afoot to make things better. But I think what we can say now is that the therapy that we have is effective and that we expect lifespans of people living with HIV, you know, to be healthy and long and normal. The evolution in treatment of this disease became even more exciting when, in 2008, the first person was effectively cured of HIV. Timothy Ray Brown was known more widely as the Berlin patient. Very sadly, just months after I talked to John, Timothy passed away after a battle with resurgent leukaemia. And we'd like to both recognise his huge contributions to the fight against AIDS, and to dedicate this episode of the history of pandemics to his memory. We can treat HIV, but that doesn't get rid of it from the body. And one of the issues around living with HIV still, and there, you know, there are 37 million people I still think living with this virus, is that there is the burden of, of having to take that tablet every day. There are still some side effects, we know that. And just having the virus on board probably does other things to you rather than AIDS. So living with a virus may, people, people describe it as a sort of an increased frailty score. It's as though you age quicker. You have a higher risk of dementia. You have a higher risk of heart disease. You have a higher risk of sort of other problems around your kidneys or your liver. So although most people do extremely well, it's not perfect. And so the hope for the future is to get a cure for HIV. The problem with that is that as part of its life cycle, the virus buries itself into your DNA. And in fact, it buries itself so deeply into your DNA that your body thinks it is part of you. And so it ignores it. And once it's there, integrated into your own chromosomes, the drugs can't touch it. And it just sits there fast asleep. And when it wants to wake up, it just chooses to do that. And that's why you have to take the drugs for life. Because actually that virus that's buried in your DNA might wake up up tomorrow or it might wake up in five years time and you don't know when that's going to be and so you have to take your tablet every day just in case that's the day the virus chooses to wake up now in order to get round that there's a there's a there's a hope that we might be able to attack that that virus hidden in the dna and the initial clue to that came from a population of people living up in scandinavia predominantly who have a certain mutation in one of their immune genes and this mutation has the name CCR5 Delta 32, for what it's worth. But the only reason, you don't need to know the name, but the main thing about that mutation is if you have it, the virus can't infect you. And we know there are a number of people in, in, in Europe as well who have this. Is, it's, it's much more rare in Asia and Africa. So it's sort, of, it's sort of predominantly in Northern Europe and sort of gets rarer and rarer from there outwards. But it is certainly there. And if you have enough copies of this mutated gene, you can't get infected with HIV. And so... The individual called the Berlin patient, who's, who's released his name now, is Timothy Ray Brown. He was living with HIV, and then he developed a blood cancer, a leukemia. And he had some treatments for that, which weren't successful. And eventually it was decided he needed a stem cell transplant, which is basically getting bone marrow cells from other people and having them injected into you so that they can replace your cancer cells. 
So the idea is your cancer cells get wiped out with, with mixtures of very toxic therapy, and then you get a new, a new immune system delivered from this other person who's donated their immune cells. And that is a very commonly used treatment for leukemia and other blood cancers. Now, the physician who was looking after Timothy Ray Brown, the Berlin patient said, well, rather than just give this guy a stem cell transplant, why don't we try and give him a stem cell transplant from someone who is already resistant to HIV, someone with a Delta 32 mutation. And actually on the donor register, there were some people who could do this. And so he identified someone who gave a donation, a bone marrow donation of these stem cells. And these were the stem cells that were used to treat Timothy Ray Brown's leukemia. And they took, and they worked, and his leukemia was cured. But at the same time, he was given an immune, a new immune system that was resistant to HIV, and he is now the first of many, many millions, hopefully to be cured one day. But it, it's a remarkable event and has now been followed on by another patient in London called the, the London patient, um, who's had the same treatment. And it looks again to have been effective. He's been off therapy for, I think, over two years now and is doing well. So this shows a proof of principle that if you can do something as spectacular as a stem cell transplant with a mutated group of cells, you can cure HIV. So it's a proof of principle, it's two people. It is not something you're gonna scale out to a pandemic, but it shows you that HIV can be cured and suggests that it is worth exploring strategies and ways that are scalable that might be able to produce the same sort of effect. As we reflect on the progress humanity has made in tackling this pandemic, something we must acknowledge is the terrible stigma that some parts of society have always associated with the disease. I asked Harold and John to reflect on that stigma, past and present. Stigma in the gay community was a real issue. I mean, even without the AIDS epidemic, there was stigma against gay men in the United States and probably throughout the world. But having this additional new disease linked to them certainly increased the stigma, and it's, I think it still is today. I think what's so interesting about HIV, and I think the reason that really hit the public interest and i'm using the word interest softly there because there was a there was a lot of different opinions especially in the 90s and still you know you know it was it was affecting gay men it was affecting it was sexually transmitted it was transmitted through drug use you know it was there were a lot of people who found all of those things abhorrent you know and so there were a lot of really strongly held appalling opinions in my mind about you know people who are suffering with a, a dreadful illness and at the same time are having to put up with with that stigma and, and i think that stigma persists today and there's still a lot of ignorance around it it's not just the infection it's how you catch it you know i wasn't talking that long ago with people and they still weren't sure you know how you catch hiv i was i was, I was giving a lecture um, not that long ago, and a, and a doctor in the audience asked me, this is a doctor in the audience, asked me if HIV had been created by the CIA. You know, I mean, there's, there is so much craziness still. I don't know why people think these things, but they do. You know, so you're battling all these opinions at the same time. And, you know, I think the press didn't help to start with in, in trying to kind of ease the, the passage of people living with this and coming to terms with it. I think things are better now in the way that it's probably dropped out of the headlines. People don't really see HIV as a problem um, so much anymore. People know it's around, but I think there's still quite a lot of ignorance, but people aren't really frightened of it. And I think my, my personal feeling is that as younger generations come through and they are more tolerant and they're more accepting of other people, 
you know, then sort of the groups who are affected by HIV don't have to put up with the same sort of stigma. And I think we are seeing that, you know, as people come through. And I think that's kind of, uh, there's, there's a lot of hope in that sort of side of things in terms of my reflection. I think it was probably a, an era of people of certain opinions driving a lot of the sort of the press and things like that. And um, hopefully that has now changed. But yeah, back then there were some crazy ideas and hopefully they've all still gone. A friend of mine summed it up really nicely. She said, if you tell someone you've got cancer, they'll give you a hug. If you tell them you've got HIV, they take a step back. And, you know, and that's still true today. You know, we, 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 I have patients who are still hiding their diagnoses, who hide their tablets from their family, mums who hide their tablets from their children so they don't know about it. I, I know I've got patients who won't even hug their grandchildren because they're scared they might infect them. You know, so it, it does go into all, all parts of life and that often gets forgotten. So what do the case numbers look like today? I asked Harold for a summary of the current situation. Well, it's estimated now there are about 38 million people worldwide with either HIV or AIDS. About 20 million have died. The real advance that's been made in the last 20 years was the availability of highly active treatment for HIV, which was first rolled out in Europe and the United States in the late 1990s. At the time, people said, you can't use this in Africa. It's too expensive. It's too complicated. There's not a treatment infrastructure that can be employed in Africa. Unfortunately, those predictions proved to be wrong. Uh, with bilateral contributions, the Global Fund, the President's Initiative for AIDS Relief in the United States, price discounts on drugs from pharmaceutical companies, it was possible to develop the treatment infrastructure that effectively developed delivery of treatment even in the poorest countries in the world. It's had a massive effect on the epidemic. Given that HIV AIDS is still an epidemic in some parts of the world, I wondered, after Harold's long career in this field, what he thought the prospects were for getting this disease fully under control. Well, I think there are three main strategies for dealing with the epidemic right now. One of them is treatment and treatment for prevention. We know that if people take their drugs and suppress the amount of virus in their genital secretions in blood, they become uninfectious to others. So there's been a big push to treat people, not just for their own health, but to prevent transmission to others. And that's been highly successful. That's the basis of most of our strategy right now. The U.S. Secretary of Health in the 1980s predicted we'd have a vaccine in two years. We still don't have it. Uh, people are still trying, but it's been very difficult to produce an effective vaccine. We don't have one. I don't know if we will for the foreseeable future. There's also a big so-called cure agenda, trying to figure out ways to us out of the body for good so that you don't need to keep taking these drugs. And there have been a few small steps forward in this, but it's not been very progressive, very successful. So right now, our strategy for prevention is really treatment. It's not the public's mind is a big problem right now because of treatment. And the public, I think, has a sense that it's all gone, which it isn't. But things fade in our memories and our priorities change. What we think is important today may be not so important tomorrow. But it's important to remember the epidemic is still with us. It hasn't gone away and it won't for a long time. The bottom line message is fear changes behavior, which is sort of a discouraging message, but I think it's true. So when gay men became scared, they changed their behavior. They stopped having unprotected sex. The rates of gonorrhea and syphilis dropped dramatically in the gay population. When treatment became available, that's kind of reversed. And people said, well, if I get it, so what? I'll be treated, I'll be fine. And they weren't scared anymore. I think the same thing is true with coronavirus. We have to keep that behavioral message going, whether we have a vaccine or not. With that in mind, I wondered what our other guests thought were the lessons we could learn from the HIV AIDS pandemic, particularly in reflecting on our experience with COVID today. Jimmy summarized like this. I think once there are measures that are seen as largely effective 
then there often is a perception that this disease, this infection is somehow less of a serious effect than it used to be. Certainly we've seen that with, with HIV and it is true. This has changed from being an infection which was essentially a death sentence and that people would be dead certainly within 10 years from having a diagnosis of HIV to this being a chronic manageable condition with close to a normal life expectancy on effective treatment. And that does change the way that people behave about a disease. If you consider, for example, how people respond to a disease like diabetes, and you compare that to how people think about coronavirus, then a very different attitude to those two diseases. Largely because diabetes, we have good measures to be able to control that. And if you follow those, you will have a close to a, a normal life expectancy. So I think this is pretty inevitable and sometimes that's a shame and it's a frustration for, for, for public health professionals that the basics get ignored. Things like washing your hands, social distancing and perhaps masks in the future might be things that people start to forget about if they know that there are treatments available or that they have been vaccinated. And John was very pleased that we'd included HIV AIDS in our series of 10 pandemics. I, I don't see, I, if you only had 10 and you hadn't included it, I'd make you have 11. Um, you, you know, it's, it's been really important in changing, it, it's changed science. It's changed how we use science in the practice of medicine. I will sit with the, the genetic code of the virus infecting my patient in front of me and I will choose the drugs I give that patient based on that genetic code. I mean, that's land breaking. It has changed people's opinions. It has tackled stigma. It's brought people together. Yeah, it's 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 not just a virus. It is it is much bigger than that. And a lot of a lot of really good things have come out of that in the way that people have responded and it's brought people together. I mean, fundamentally, it's a dreadful disease that needs treating and needs curing. But on the back of that, you know, the human response has has been amazing. And I think you know, as a as as, as a species, we we are different because of it. Next time on Future Makers, we conclude our history of pandemics season with a disease that's not only still with us today, but whose major outbreak happened only a few years ago, Ebola. First discovered in 1976, Ebola erupted into West Africa in 2014, devastating populations in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone before spreading further afield. This disease might be indelibly linked with one continent. It was an outbreak near the Ebola River in the Democratic Republic of Congo that gave it its name. But our experience of it provides lessons for the whole world, not least in pandemic preparedness, many of which we may still need to learn today. Join me in discovering what those lessons are in the concluding episode of our History of Pandemics season. I'm Peter Millikan, and you've been listening to Future Makers. Future Makers was created in-house at the University of Oxford and presented by Professor Peter Millikan from Hartford College. Our voice actor today was Mike McDonald 
and the series is written and produced by Ben Harwood and Steve Pritchard. The score for the series was designed and created by me, Richard Watts. Thank you on behalf of the whole team for listening to the History of Pandemics.